Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study, ready to think and focus and concentrate and all of those good things and make sure that uh, uh, we're doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the energy of the flesh. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful to be here this evening, to be able to study your word, be, to be refreshed, encouraged, and challenged as we come to understand your word and as we think through all the things that you have revealed to us as they help us to understand reality as it is. Father, we know that there are so many in this world who have no clue what reality is about and they live in a fantasy world of rejecting truth. And the result of just the, the vast numbers of those people leads to greater and greater problems and conflicts throughout history and throughout the world. And we're the only ones who have light and truth. And we are challenged by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 to go forth and shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. The only way we can do that is if the light of your word is illuminating our soul so that we in turn can share that light with the world around us. Father, we pray that you would help us as we study the word this evening to focus and to concentrate and to understand how this helps us to think more clearly about the gospel, about your work in our lives, and about the challenge that we have to present the gospel to those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is such a fun week. You're going to really enjoy it. It, it, It's just amazing how more often than I make notice of the classes on different times, even though we're going through different books, how they tend to complement each other. But this is one of those times when they really complement each other. If you want to understand uh, the issues related to Calvinism and Arminianism, and if you are uh, studying those issues and Trying to, and if you're presenting or dealing with somebody who holds to a strong Calvinistic uh, view of salvation and the doctrines of salvation, then two of the verses that they will go to in order to substantiate their views of unconditional election and predestination are found in Acts 13, verse 48, which we're studying tonight, and Romans 8, 28, through 30, which we're studying on Thursday night. And of all the verses, there are several other important verses, but those are two of the central verses that that are brought into the debate over uh, the attempt to understand the relationship of the sovereignty of God and the volition of human beings. So it's always important to study these types of verses in context, as we've been doing, because so much of the time in theology, what you get is people making uh, bullet points, and then they give you the scripture references, and sometimes they'll actually cite the scriptures, but they're just citing the verse, or maybe two verses, and you don't get the context and the flow of argument that surrounds that verse. And often, By taking a verse out of context, it sounds like it's saying one thing, and in reality, it may not be saying that at all. And and that's one of the reasons why 
I do what I do in putting a lot of verses up on the screen and instead of giving points and saying, okay, and then just putting some verses up there and slapping some uh, references up there for you to look up, I want you to see what those verses are and what those verses actually say and talk about them in context so that we can understand what they are saying and understand the word a little uh, a little better. So we've been going through Acts chapter 13, and I've been focusing on the principle that Paul is is explaining the gospel. This is the first in-depth presentation of the gospel that we see from the Apostle Paul to a Jewish audience. He's following the principle he states uh, later on in, in the first chapter of Romans, taking the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He believed that was his uh, mandate from God, even though he is the apostle to the Gentiles, there was still this this claim, uh, this 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 mandate to take the gospel of the kingdom to the uh, Jews and to give them the first op- the, or the opportunity of first refusal, which happened almost every time, and that's what we see here. And then there's a free and open and clear door to take the gospel to the Gentiles who are receiving the gospel with with open arms and and with enthusiasm. And so in the last three or four lessons, what I've done is to help us understand how Paul is structuring his, his presentation of the gospel. And I think that's important. I never had that growing up, and I, and I don't know too many people that did, have a very good grasp of the Old Testament presentation of the gospel. I think any of us ought to be prepared to be able to walk somebody through a gospel presentation without ever going to the New Testament, except maybe at the end, uh, just to lay that groundwork. But that would only be with certain kinds of an audience. Other kinds of an audience, you need to do other things. Everybody's different. You don't just have one or two canned approaches. You just need to know the word. So the Holy Spirit can can use you. So we've worked through all of these areas, and then last time we came uh, to the basic presentation of the gospel in Acts thirteen thirty eight and thirty nine. And at, at that time, I pointed out that the focal point here of in his explanation of the gospel is a gospel of the forgiveness of sins, a gospel of the forgiveness of sins. And I pointed out that in the gospel message, now the word gospel means good news. It's good news about something. It's not bad news. It's good news that, that there's something that we have that's given to us as a free gift because of what Christ did on the cross. And there are different ways to express that. One way is to talk about it in terms of forgiveness of sins. That is very important for some people depending on their background and and their history. For other people, the issue may be reconciliation. For others, it may be an understanding of, of justification. For others, it may be an understanding of, of the gift of eternal life. But the focal point is, is always on the work that Christ did on the cross that provides these. These are just different facets of what was accomplished on the cross. And I pointed out last time that you have these debates that occur and have occurred theologically through history. And the major debate that has occurred is one that is between a group that I will call uh, fatalists or determinists, for lack of a better term. And these are those who emphasize the sovereign authority of God that God oversees and controls history to the degree that human beings really don't have ultimate freedom in the areas of the will. They, they have freedom at a lower level. They can decide whether to put on a, uh, a pair of uh, driving moccasins or a pair of Crocs or something like that or, or uh, cowboy boots or something. But when it comes to significant matters in life, and especially salvation, man does not have free will. He does not have responsible choice. That's another way of of expressing it. He cannot make those kinds of choices. They're predetermined by a sovereign, controlling God. That's what I would call a fatalistic or deterministic view of God's sovereign will. On the other side... You have a group that has so 
rejected the sovereignty of God, that they emphasize human freedom to the point that man basically determines God's will. Everything is determined by God. Ultimately, somebody's got to determine everything. It's either going to be God or the creature. And so you have these two, uh, the way it's set up is to polarize these two positions to where you either have a totally sovereign God or a totally free uh, creature. Now, in, in recent years, there's been an even weirder heretical view on the side of freedom. And this came out in the 90s and became known as open theism. Now, open theism held to the basic view that if, if, God, uh, if God is going to know that something will cert- certainly happen in the future, that you have two options. Either he totally controls everything to bring that about, which means there's no freedom, or he's really just making an educated guess. He's not omniscient. He's just open to the future. But God can't know with certainty what will happen in the future without being able to control what will happen in the future. And so they, and if you read the literature on this, and there is just, you can fill up shelves with this. What happens is a vast number of the books that are written are written not from a biblical perspective, even though theologians are writing them. They, there's a tremendous amount of, of, uh, of discussion and argumentation that's based on pure philosophical constructs. And I'm not going to get into that tonight or any other night. I want to deal with just what the text of Scripture says. And what I find to be frustrating for a certain number of people is that on the, on the one side, the determinist side, and that's really represented historically by two great figures. Uh, the first was the Bishop of Hippo, which is in North Africa uh, near, near Carthage, and that was uh, Augustine. Uh, and then the second, and that was about the 5th century B.C., 4th century B.C., and I mean A.D., 4th century A.D. And then the second was John Calvin, Jean Calvin, who was a French lawyer initially and then shifted into the study for the priesthood and became the leader of the French branch of the Reformation and the French-Swiss branch of the Reformation and conducted most of his ministry out of Geneva. So those were the two figures who are most known in terms of this debate. So it's often referred to as Augustinianism versus uh, Pelagianism. Pelagius was a British monk who believed that everybody had the same freedom that Adam had, and everybody was born in the same scent, uh, same uh, neutrality as Adam. And his name was Pelagius. And so you had the initial debate between Augustine and Pelagius, and then later on between Calvinists, the, the, the followers of John Calvin, and a group of Calvin, former Calvinists who were out of Holland who became known as Arminians because they were following a, uh, a theologian, a professor named Jacobus Arminius or James Arminius. And so th- that's the historical background and the historical uh, a context. So people tend to think that everything can be divided in two ways. Calvinists and, and Augustinians tend to emphasize the grandeur and the greatness of God and, and the authority of God. And I've been pinned. I have close friends who are extremely strong Calvinists, and they will they will pin try to pin their opponent and say, "There is uh, who's in charge, God or man?" And and my response is, you've, "You're creating a false dichotomy." You've created a God who, in my opinion, is less powerful because it's, it's either his control or man's control. He doesn't have the power and the authority to oversee uh, creation and maintain his control over the flow of history working in and through human volition behind the scenes without controlling it. That's a larger, greater God than a God who uh, controls the volition of everybody. 
he's able to, because he's so much greater than all of the circumstances and, and people, he's able to uh, sort of guide and direct the whole process and without sacrificing the individual volitional responsibility of the creatures. Now, the whole concept of freedom is another bag because Adam had one level of freedom, but his descendants don't have that same level of freedom. We all know we're born slaves of the sin nature. Slaves of the sin nature, as Paul explains in Romans 6, just that very metaphor, that very image of being a slave of the sin nature mitigates against the concept of us being very free. We're slaves. But then when we get get saved, we're not that much freer because now we're bond slaves of righteousness. So this idea that we're free is is really kind of a misnomer, and that's one of those terms like fair that I think it just has so many ambiguities to it that one person's fairness is another person's inequality and another person's socialism and another person's communism. And, And freedom kind of gets the same way. So we have to be careful about some of these uh, some of these terms, and so one of the things we need to emphasize those come back to, I think, what this Bible emphasizes, and that is personal responsibility and personal ability to make certain certain decisions uh, and being held accountable. That's what responsibility is: is being held accountable for those for those decisions. So. I want to pay attention to some of that verbiage as we go through here. Now, as we look at Acts 13.38, Paul says to his unsaved, unregenerate Jewish audience, therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, <coughs> through this man is proclaimed to you or is announced to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes. See, this is emphasizing the human individual responsibility aspect of the gospel. You determine your eternal destiny. Everyone who believes. He never says everyone who is uh, preordained, everyone who is elect, everyone who is uh, determined by God. He never, the, the scriptures never put it that way. Everyone who believes, belief is an individual decision. Now, this gets into another little rabbit trail, and I don't want want to run down too many of these because they they really get us off track of the main idea, but you need to be educated and aware of some of the things that are going on. Last time I pointed out that within the stream of what is called free free grace gospel, the Grace Evangelical Society, which was started by Bob Wilkin, as a um, as a, uh, a student of, of Zane Hodges, that they got off track by narrowing the gospel to simply an offer of eternal life and believing in Jesus for eternal life. Anything else wasn't the gospel. And my problem with that is that that's just one facet of a gospel presentation. You can believe in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. You can believe in him for eternal life. You can believe in him for justification or redemption or reconciliation. Or you can just believe in him because that's you know that's the only way to heaven and i am just got to trust him and I don't really understand all this other stuff and that's how I was when I was six years old. But Jesus is the only way to get to heaven and I'm trusting him to get me there because that's the level of which you can comprehend this when you're six years old. You're not going to sit down and go through 19 points on the doctrine of regeneration when you're six years old. But what happens when people start trying to slice the bologna very, real thin on asking certain questions like what little, how, how, what's the smallest amount of information you have to believe in order to be saved, they can really lead you down wrong trails. So that was one wrong trail that the GES crowd went through, went down. The other crowd is they started getting upset about talking about volition in salvation, that faith wasn't volitional. Now, as I've parsed the literature on this and read read what they're talking about, I think what they're really reacting to is a branch of evangelicalism and tent revivalism and Billy Graham event type uh, evangelicalism or, or, or evangelism, where you have people say, you need to know when you decided to trust in Christ, and if you can't pinpoint when you made that decision for Jesus, then you're not saved. 
It's decisional. That seems to be what they were really going after, but what they end up saying is that, well, faith really isn't volitional. So that created another little problem. So these are some of the things that 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 we had to face with Chafer Seminary because we had two or three people on faculty who were going down these wrong roads and it was causing a lot of lot of conflict. This was about eight or nine years ago. So it's important to understand these distinctions. And here, everyone who believes, when you put a word like belief into a, an imperatival context, either an imperatival um, participle or an imperative mood verb, an imperative demands a response of yes or no. You have to make a decision. It's simple grammar. And yet, you know, the the the, the twists and turns and the gymnastics that... that uh, people went through to try to argue that faith really wasn't volitional. Uh, they, they ended up saying some things that Calvinists would say on the side of irresistible grace. So it's it, it was quite a it's it's crazy. <clears throat> There's the presentation of what Christ did. He provides the forgiveness of sins. Then there's the challenge to the individual, everyone who believes. That's the condition, and the result is justified from all things from which you could not be justified. You can be justified by anything by, Moses, by the law of Moses. So that's the presentation of the gospel. And then there was a challenge. And this challenge is a warning that, of judgment that is about to come if they reject this free offer of God's grace. So in verse, part, uh, verse 40, Paul says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Now, that's his formula. That's his statement for introducing a quote from the Old Testament. And we've gone through this a number of times, so I'm just going to remind you a little bit. There's four basic different ways in which, by which New Testament writers quote Old Testament passages as being fulfilled. Okay? Four different ways. And it's important to understand that. And every, we spent a lot of time on this at the beginning of Acts. And so I'm not going to spend it now. Every time we hit these kind of passages, I try to go back and, and, and remind you of this. The first way is literal prophecy, literal fulfillment. The example of that is in Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 says that, predicts that the Messiah, the descendant of David, will be born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. So that's literally fulfilled. The Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Literal literal prophecy, literal fulfillment. Then there's a a second category in, in which it's a historical event that occurred, but it has a... It's used by the New Testament writer as representing a type or a pattern of a future fulfillment. And in Hosea... Uh, there's a statement made, God is speaking about Israel, that he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son, meaning Israel. Matthew in Matthew 2 takes that verse, and he shows that this represented, just as the Jews came out of Egypt, that's a type or a picture of Jesus coming out of Egypt after the family fled there when Herod was threatening to kill and did uh, attack all of the uh, children, babies, male babies under the age of two and killed them in Bethlehem. Uh, the family fled to Egypt and then came back, and that's a fulfillment in type of what was seen in Israel coming out uh, in the Old Testament. And the third way is that the, it's not a literal prophecy, the event in the Old Testament. The statement's not a literal prophecy. It is a pattern. It's something that is similar. This is similar to that. It's not a literal fulfillment. This is when in Joel 2, the, the prediction that your old men will dream dreams and your young men will prophesy and uh, or the, young, the young women will prophesy and the, the young men will um, dream dreams. And that, that's at the end of, of Joel 2. Then that, the context indicate that that comes at the time, at the end of the day of the Lord. Peter quotes from that in Acts chapter 2 and says, this is what they're seeing. But it's not a literal fulfillment because as we point, as I pointed out, all the things that are mentioned in Joel 2 
of all the things that are mentioned in Joel 2, none none happen in Acts 2. And the one thing that happens in Acts 2, which is speaking in tongues, isn't mentioned in Joel 2. All that Peter is saying is this event is similar to that, and I'm just using that Old Testament, that, that, that prophecy, to point out a pattern or a point of similarity in how God works. That's what we have here. This is a point of similarity. This isn't a fulfillment of the passage he's quoting from Habakkuk. He's quoting from Habakkuk in order to show that there's a pattern in the way that God deals with with sinful disobedience. When people reject his offer of grace, then God brings judgment. So he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, and that's what we have in verse 41. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Now just hold your place. Keep it here in Acts 13. And let's turn back to Habakkuk chapter 5, or chapter 1, verse 5. Habakkuk or Habakkuk is one of, I think it's a great book to study. It is a book that is a um, has a great message that we can all, all understand and, and we can relate to because it's Habakkuk's a, a prophet and he's thinking in terms of of um, looking around and he's he has a sense of righteousness and the nation has just become absolutely paganized. Uh, we have a hard time relating to that, I know, living in the midst of a pagan nation, but but he's frustrated. There's a certain proper self-righteous indignation here as he looks and it just seems that God is letting them get away with all of this. I mean, he probably had his version of, well, if, if God doesn't do something with such and such a city, then he'll need to go back and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Just like we say, if God lets things continue the way they are in San Francisco, then he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We just feel like there is such sin and evil going on, and God just doesn't seem to deal with it. So Habakkuk is coming to God at the beginning of the book, and he's like, God, why don't you see all of this that's going on? Why don't you deal with it? And God's response is, I'm dealing with it. I'm going to bring the the Chaldeans in, and they're going to destroy the country. And Habakkuk just says, wait a minute, they're worse than we are. How can you do that? God says, because I'm the boss, I'm in control. That's that's the whole message of the book in a nutshell. And so this comes, this citation from Habakkuk 1.5 comes at the beginning of this. And um, uh, Habakkuk begins with his cry in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you won't hear? And cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble for plundering, etc., etc., and you don't do anything about it? Verse 5, God says, um, Look among the nations and watch. It says, Pay attention to history. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For I indeed am raising up the Chaldeans. Let me put this text over here. For I indeed am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They're terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. So this is indeed a prophecy. God is saying, watch at what I'm about to do. So it's prophecy. It's literal prophecy. But is is it literal in Acts thirteen? Is that the fulfillment? No, because this was fulfilled in five eighty six when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But what is happening in Acts thirteen forty one is that Paul is saying just as God brought judgment upon the Israelites at that time, because they rejected God's grace and they and they turned from worshiping God to worshiping idols, you've got a chance to turn back at this point and to worship God, to accept his Messiah as your Savior who provides you with forgiveness of sins. But if you reject that, if you uh, turn from that, 
then you will face the same consequences, the same kind of consequences that the Israelites faced, that, that Judah faced in 586 B.C. So this is the warning. And um, in verse 40 and 41, uh, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe. Their, God, he's emphasizing the fact or the implication is there, their hearts are hardened and there's going to be a large number of them that won't believe, uh, no matter how well it's declared to them, just like the folks in Judah in 586. They rejected God, rejected the prophets, had everything painted for them in, in very clearly, and they still said no. See, that's negative volition. It blinds us to the truth. So this this is the warning. This is how... Paul closed his gospel presentation, is if you don't respond, then you're going to be subject to divine judgment. You'll be blinded to the truth, just like your ancestors were at the time of of Nebuchadnezzar. So you wouldn't think that would uh, uh, generate a lot of uh, warm feelings. It certainly generated a lot of discussion, and this is what we see in um, uh, coming up in the next couple of verses. But first I want to just show you some verses that to show you in Acts why this message that Paul is saying fits with all the other messages, the same challenge about uh, this warning that there will be a, a significant judgment on Israel. In Acts 3, 22 and 23, Peter said, uh, Moses said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. Talking, That's the prophetic fulfillment. And it shall be that every soul who does not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Judgment will come if you reject Jesus as Messiah. In chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, but has become the chief cornerstone. And then Peter said, nor is there salvation in any other There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In Acts 10, Peter again to Cornelius, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And then in Acts 17, 30 and 31, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That is to change their thinking about God and about the Messiah. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance to this by all to all by raising him from the dead. So this is the point. There's judgment coming. Now, this generated a lot of discussion. Verse 42. So when the Jews went to went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And what we have here is uh, uh, just, it's a good translation, as the Jews are exiting, uh, are departing from the areas, they're going out, standard word, exame for, for exiting or, or leaving an area. So as the Jews, so that it should be translated, it's a participle, should be translated at, at the same time. As the Jews are going out, now remember, what did Paul say in the group back in verse um Back in verse, um, where was that? Verse 15, you had, um, or, or earlier, it was Jews and uh, seekers of God among the Gentiles. So that's the group that's that's there in the um, uh, in the congregation in the in the synagogue. And so while the Jews are leaving, and this would be when he uses the term Jews, he's not just talking about ethnic Jews. All through the Gospel of John, John refers to the Jews, the Jews, the Jews as the bad guys. But John's a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. Uh, The other disciples are all Jews. Many of those who were believing on Jesus were Jews. The the text isn't using the term the Jews as an ethnic, uh, uh, referring to everyone who's ethnically Jewish. It's a term that refers to the leaders of the group, the leaders of the Jews. And so that's what he, what he mentions here, that when the Jews went out of the synagogue, so the leadership, 
As the people are leaving the synagogue, the leadership goes out first, but the Gentiles, these these proselytes who are seekers of God, um, hang back in order to talk to Paul, and they are begging that these words might be might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now they know that they're not going to meet again for another week. So they're begging Paul to stay in town and to come back and speak to all of them uh, the next Sabbath. And the ter- term there that is translated begged here is the word parakaleo. It's sometimes translated challenge or exhort. Sometimes it's, it has a basic meaning of calling to one side. But it also has the idea of making an urgent request for something. So they're pleading with Paul to stay another week and then to address the the synagogue again the next uh, Shabbat. Verse 43 says, Now, uh, when the congregation had broken up, that is when they had left and they were departing, many of the Jews, and here this is would be talking about uh, the orthodox of the group, and these would be among the leaders. These are the more devout among the um, uh, among the group, uh, the Jews and devout proselytes. So the term shifts a little bit right here, and we're seeing a transition occur in Paul's ministry, where now the focus is going to be more and more upon uh, upon the Gentiles. So as the uh, whole congregation is breaking up. You still had a number of Jews and devout proselytes who were following uh, Paul and Barnabas and asking questions and showing uh, their interest and curiosity about what they have just learned. They're just, you know, I know what that's like. You go to a church, you teach something, people get really interested and excited about the Word, and uh, as you're leaving, they just want to bombard you with questions, or afterwards you go to the uh, local coffee shop and sit around and and, uh, talk about uh, the message and, and, and probe and answer questions and things of that nature. So here we have these uh, uh, devout uh, proselytes here, and these would be the, the, the Jews who are really serious about studying the Word, who were really seeking out its meaning, and the uh, Gentile proselytes who were also uh, genuinely involved in trying to understand the Word of God and to make it a part of their life. So they are the, dilig- the, the, the ones who are truly expressing a positive, uh, positive volition. So they're the most uh, serious Bible students and the most seriously uh, are the most spiritually focused uh, in the group, and they're the ones that, that, um, that Paul's focusing on here. So they follow Paul and Bar- Barnabas to get, um, to get more answers. Then a week goes by. Now, what do you think was going on during that week? I think we can speculate legitimately that Paul and Barnabas didn't leave town. They're still there, and that people are coming around, and they're having ongoing discussions, and uh, they, everybody didn't go home into their little air-conditioned uh, uh, homes and watch TV all night or get on their computer or play Twitter or whatever else that they're doing and sending messages and doing social networking. They were getting out and really networking with people and talking about what Paul had said the, the Sabbath before. This is a main topic of conversation in the Jewish community and among the Gentiles. If this is really true and if we can bring in some, some ideas from some of the other places that Paul went, they're the, the more devout are probably searching the scriptures to see uh, how these messianic prophecies that they knew fit into in with Jesus. So the next week, we, there's been excitement building all week, and almost the whole city comes to uh, together to hear the. It's not the word of God, literally. It's the word of the curious, word of the Lord, and so they come together in order to hear Paul teach on the word again. And verse 45 we read, But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Now in Romans 11, Paul says that the Jews are going to look at God's blessing on the Gentiles, and eventually this is going to stir them to jealousy, so they're going to want what we have. But that's not what's happening here. Just the reverse is happening. They become jealous 
of the Gentiles, a certain segment of the Jews became jealous of the Gentiles, and they began arguing and disputing with Paul. Now, what happens in this kind of a context frequently is you see it, all of a sudden it becomes about ego, and nobody's listening and nobody's trying to get to the truth of the matter. They're more concerned about refuting the, whatever the other person is saying so they look like they win the debate. And that's what we see a lot today in a lot of politics and a lot of the stuff that goes on, on in, in the news is people just debating with each other. Nobody really cares about the truth. They just care about being able to sound better or look better or put down the other person. It doesn't matter whether their facts are right or not, it just as long as it, they win the debate. So this is the kind of thing that's going on here. They're contradicting Paul and the word for blasphemy usually doesn't, in Scripture, doesn't, you don't blaspheme against people, you blaspheme against God. You can revile against some people, that's the same word uh, used for blasphemy, but primarily it's used against God. So they're contradicting Paul, and the blasphemy is against God. Their, their contradiction of Paul, their hostility to Paul and to Paul's message of the gospel is a blasphemy against God. And so they are opposing everything that is uh, spoken uh, by God, I mean by Paul. They are blaspheming everything uh, that, he, that he is speaking the, the, um, uh, in the text. Now, again, we have to understand the Jews here as the leadership within the congregation, just as it was the leadership uh, in Israel that the Jews who rejected Christ. And then in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas respond with great confidence and boldness. In verse, verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold. They literally, it means to speak, speak out, to speak boldly against those who are challenging them. Remember, they're in somebody else's house. And whenever you go to, one of the things I try to tell young pastors, if you're ever invited to go speak at somebody else's church, be careful you don't step on their toes. You're not there to correct the pastor in front of his congregation, and you're not there to correct the congregation whatever uh, views they have. You're there to preach the truth as clear as you can without uh, creating trauma in in the process. Uh, So now they're having to create trauma because they have been attacked as they've been teaching the word. And so they're not going to back off. They're going to stand their ground, and they responded boldly. And and Paul says it was necessary, uh, necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Now, this is the first time something is introduced that has some sort of, of implication of necessity or something that has been determined. But it's not in the deterministic sense. It is that God had a plan, and that plan was that they were supposed to take the gospel to the Jews first. And so since that was the way God planned it, that was what they executed so that by doing so, the rejection by the Jews would make it evident to all that the gospel should go to the Gentiles. So Paul says it's it's of a necessity that the word of God that the word of God should be uh, spoken to you first but since you reject it now this is what we want to focus on here since you reject it where's the emphasis there on terms of in terms of responsibility it's on the individual Jew in the congregation they are the ones who are making a decision to reject what they have been told. They are making that volitional decision. They're taking that responsibility to completely reject uh, what Paul has uh, proclaimed to them. They rejected, and they, it says, you, you judge yourselves, and there's a reflexive pronoun there for emphasis. They judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. This is really interesting, the way that Paul sets this up and the way that Luke presents this. Because if you don't understand this verse, you can't understand verse 48. Verse 48 is the key verse that Calvinism stands on. But if it's taken in isolation, it sounds like it's saying something else. But it's a contrast to this statement. 
Paul says, you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. What, what was the gospel message that he proclaimed? That Jesus died for, so that you could have forgiveness of sins. Now he's, he doesn't mention forgiveness of sins here. He mentions something else. He mentions eternal life. You judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. How did they judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life? They judged themselves unworthy by rejecting the message of, of, of Paul, the, the gospel message. So the responsibility is theirs. He doesn't say you rejected it because you were ordained to eternal condemnation. He doesn't say you rejected it because you were predestined to the lake of fire. He doesn't say they rejected it because you're not one of the elect. He doesn't say that. He says you rejected it because you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. You made the decision. It's all your decision. And because of that, it has consequences, and one of those is that we turn to the Gentiles. Now, verse 46 then is followed by an explanation with a quote from the Old Testament. Acts 13, 47, For so the Lord has commanded us, notice his emphasis is always, we're doing what God tells us to do. And then he quotes from Isaiah 42, uh, it's statement both in 42.6 and in 49.6. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles. That's what we're supposed to be. We are to be shining as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, according to Philippians chapter 2. I've set you as light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. So this was predicted in the Old Testament that the Jews were going to be the gospel bearers to bring light to the to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, that is literally to the nations, as a light to the Gentiles. So this is part of God's command to Israel is that the Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, and that is fulfilled through the gospel ministry of the apostles. Isaiah 49, 6, Indeed he, that is the Lord, says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore uh, the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So twice we have almost the same thing stated in Isaiah, and that means that the Holy Spirit really, really, really wants us to pay attention to that as the role of, uh, of the Jews. So Paul recognizes that and applies it to his situation. And then we see the contrast. The contrast is between the Jewish hostility and their rejection of the message of forgiveness and their rejection of the hostility of, uh, I mean, their, their, their rejection of, of the offer of eternal life. And the Gentiles welcome it. The Gentiles say, well, they were glad and they glorified the word or the message of the Lord and I think we could translate that the message about the Lord, which is referring to, it's not referring to the Bible like we would talk about the Word of God. It's talking, Lagos can mean message, and he's talking about the message of the Lord that they've just heard from Paul. Uh, that's the best explanation looking at the context. So when they heard the message, they were glad and they glorified the Word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, see, you may or may not have run across that, that verse before. But this is one of those verses where uh, Calvinists state their claim for unconditional election. And when they read that, they say, see, th- what precedes belief is that in eternity past, God had to make a decision as to who would be ordained to, to eternal life and who would not. And they base that on the fact that the verb form there that's translated had been appointed, this is the verb tasso, we'll look at it in a minute, is a perfect tense verb which refers to an action that's completed at some time in the past, but its results continue on through history. And so they take this phrase, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. If you're not appointed to eternal life, then then you won't believe. That's really the key is election, and this is one of the verses. But we have to t- stop a minute and say, well, let's look at the context, and let's see if that's really the best way to translate this in light of the context. 
So let's look at the contrast, because this context is so important. Verse 48 up on top. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed is contrasted with the response of the Jews in verse 46, since you reject it, not since you weren't appointed to eternal life, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, we turn to the Gentiles. But as many has been appointed. Now, what it sounds like in the way it's usually translated is that on the one hand you have the Jews who are making a decision to reject the gospel, and on the other hand the Gentiles respond because they were appointed to respond. But see, you're comparing one idea, which is of volition in verse 46, with a deterministic idea in verse 48, and that's like contrasting apples with oranges. But that doesn't make sense. That That is contradictory in the passage. Now, in English, it looks that way. This way you have to go back to the original languages. The verb that is translated had been appointed to eternal life uh, the idea of appointed is the verb tasso. It's a perfect tense verb. This is where grammar is important to understand, which means completed action. Okay, the first word, as many as, is a, is, is a pronoun that indicates a large number of individuals, and it's focusing on the, the end of each of the individuals in that group had at some time in the past, completed in the past, had been something, okay, and it's usually translated appointed or ordained sometimes to eternal life. That whole pronoun phrase is the subject of the verb believed. But we have to understand what that word tasso means. Its general meaning is to appoint or to station or to rank or to bring order to something. It was used in a military term, and as I've read through a lot of different commentators, it's obvious that some people who approach this passage want to bring the military context in to understand the meaning of the word. But that's the military context of ordering someone in ranks is just one application of this, this term. The, the BDAG there stands for Bauer, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, which is the third edition of the most respected lexicon of Koine Greek that's available today, okay? And it lists among the meanings of this word tasso to belong to a group, interesting, as many as belong to eternal life believed. That's a totally different idea, isn't it? Okay? Uh, as many as were classed among those with eternal life believed. or And this, I think, this is the second meaning listed in Arndt and Gingrich. It says it has the basic idea of giving instructions as to what must be done. So if I'm going to appoint you to a task, I'm what goes with that is what I mean when I say I'm appointing you to do this is I'm instructing you in a course of action. Now, that to me really makes the best sense is to take that phrase as identified by, by uh, Arndt Gingrich as the core second meaning of the term and to use that, and it makes a little more, a little more sense. It also clearly in other passages has the idea of determining something or appointing something or fixing something. But you have to look at context to determine how these words are used. So we look at this, and the first point is, when we look at the phrase, as many as were classified among those with eternal life believed. That's one way of interpreting, of, of translating it. As many as were classified or ranked uh, with, the, with eternal life believed. And I think that's the idea, is as many as were sort of identified with eternal life. Uh, the second option that I put up there is to translate it as many as were given instructions as to what must be done for eternal life believed. See, that was that second meaning I pointed out over here in Arndt Gingrich, uh, to give instructions as to what must be done. So I just inserted that, as many as were given instructions as to what must be done for eternal life believed. Now we don't. There's no no problem. There is all of a sudden everything is cleared up because you 
choose a word that fits the context. That emphasizes personal decision-making, and that's what it's being contrasted to, is the wrong decision made by the Jews with the right decision made here. Another suggestion that is made that I think also has some merit is to translate this, as many as were devoted or oriented to eternal life believed. Now, who were the ones who believed? The ones who believed were the more devout Jews and the more intent uh, Gentile proselytes who had converted uh, to Judaism and were intensely studying the word. These are the ones that followed Paul and Barnabas out and are just plying them with questions because they really want to understand uh, understand the truth. So there, you could say they were really devoted to eternal life. Now, this word tasso is translated that way also in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, where at the close of 1 Corinthians, Paul is giving some personal instructions, and he said, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, that is the first family in Achaia to have trusted in Christ, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Now, the other thing here is that, that Tasso is in a present passive or present middle construction. Middle is a reflexive mood. So if I want to say I comb my hair, I would use uh, the verb comb in a middle voice. But in Greek, in, in certain uh, tenses, the, they, they don't have a different ending for passive and a different ending for middle voice. They're the same, and you have to discern from context whether it's going to be middle or passive. So here it, it's used as an aorist middle. Aorist does have a distinctive middle case, or middle voice. So it's used as a, a distinctive middle, and it's the idea that they have devoted themselves or focused themselves on something. Now, that makes a tremendous amount of sense if we look at Acts 13.48 again, that in contrast to verse 46, you have this one group of unbelievers that reject the truth, and they consider themselves unworthy of everlasting life. And in contrast to that, these are Gentiles who have devoted themselves or focused themselves on understanding eternal life. They are the ones who have been instructed in eternal life, and they are the ones who believed. Now, I think that makes a lot more sense than bringing in the idea of using it as, as, as many of those who were ordained or appointed. And it's not even pra, which would be before, pra tasso, which would be ordained for ordained. It doesn't say that. And it doesn't say as many as were foreordained to believe. It says those who were tasso to eternal life. So it skips over belief. They're, they're not foreordained or predestined to believe, but they're foreordained for eternal life. Now, another way to understand this is that God has ordained a path to get eternal life. And that path to get eternal life means you have to believe and accept the gospel. And if you accept the gospel, then you are ordained to eternal life because you've been, you have followed the path to, that God set forth to get eternal life. And that's by faith alone in Christ alone. And if you reject that, then you're not on that path. You're not oriented or focused on eternal life. You're trying to do it your own way. So that helps us understand. Now, Thursday night, we're going to come back and deal with, start dealing with concepts like predestination and foreknowledge and the calling of God in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And so that's going to help kind of bring some other ideas into this that, that maybe relate to some questions you have. But before we f I finish, I just want to cover the last four verses because this is the reaction among the Jewish community there. The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the, all the regions. So there's this tremendous positive response by the Gentiles, and they're telling everybody about the fact that they can have forgiveness of sins by trusting in Christ alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for salvation. But in co contrast, the Jews 
are creating hostility. They're stirring up the devout and prominent men. In other words, they're going to the leaders in the community and they're slandering and they're, and they're making false accusations about Paul and Barnabas and what they're doing and stirring up everybody against them so that they're raising up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they are kicked out of not only town but out of the, out of the province. They are run out of town. And so what they do is they shake the dust off their feet against them, which was just a symbol of the fact that they were, did not hold themselves accountable for the, for the decisions of uh, the people in Antioch. And then they went to the next town, Iconium. That's where we'll start in chapter 14. And the result is that the disciples, now the term disciple is not a synonym for the people who are saved because there are people who are saved who aren't disciples. A disciple is someone who's committed to be a student of somebody. And there are people who are believers who just really aren't very concerned about being a student of the Scriptures. But the disciples, this refers to those who are pursuing spiritual growth and making that a priority in their life. And the result is this is another one of those uh, statements that that uh, Luke makes just just in, in, in bringing us up to date to the expansion of the gospel that the disciples, those who were pursuing spiritual growth, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this isn't the word that's used in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. That's the word plerao. This is the word pimplemi, which is a descriptive term related to maturity and spiritual growth. It is not uh, in Ephesians 5.18. You have a verb, verbal command with a dative of means, be filled by means of the Spirit. Here we have a description. They were full of joy, indicating that the, the people exhibited joy in their life, and full of the Holy Spirit. Their life was characterized by a walk by the Holy Spirit. That's what that's emphasizing. So that brings us to the end of this one segment of Paul's uh visit his his first sermon to Jews next time in Acts 14 in Iconium he's talking to primarily a Greek audience that doesn't come to the uh come to, come with any baggage other than pure paganism so they have no understanding and his presentation to the Greeks is going to be completely different than his presentation uh, to the Jews so anybody have any questions You want me to read the uh, translation of verse 48 over again? Okay, let me back up to that slide. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been devoted to eternal life believed. That's one way to put it. Another way to put it is uh, a number two on this screen as many as were given instructions as to what must be done for eternal life believed. Both of those are emphasizing the personal volition of these individuals who want to know about eternal life. And as they've studied that, then they, they believe. Diesel. Because the verbiage isn't the same. The message is the same, but it's different. It's a different emphasis with, with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts, uh, where was that, in Acts 11. It, you don't have Tasso there. I'm just focusing on understanding the Tasso terminology here. Yeah, because all through here we pointed out, as I pointed out before, it's always believe, 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 believe. There's never any other verb that's related to it's always emphasizing that personal volition. So tasso is not a word that comes along and negates that, but is a word that must be understood that's consistent with that. I guess my point was is that this leads directly into what you and I were talking about with the armor bearers. That's the separation off where you go into James and talk about... Right, where you're, where, right. this is calling, well, the discipleship part. They're responding positively. But all I wanted to focus on tonight is to set this up, understand that what does it mean to be appointed to eternal life, that that doesn't mean foreordination or predestination or that. We'll get into those other terms on Thursday night when we get into Romans, Romans 8.
Anything else? All right. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to help us to uh, just think through a little bit a very difficult concept related to your authority and your control over uh, human history and at the same time allowing for the uh, decisions, free decisions, free volition, independent volition of individual creatures without violating their volition on the one hand or sacrificing your authority and sovereign control on the other hand, that the two work together. Father, we pray that you would help us and challenge us to be ready and prepared to give the gospel to those who are uh, in our midst and around us, that we might be uh, faithful witnesses of the cross of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.